All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with Calvin. Hey, thanks for having me. And we just went on a Cineventure. We just finished watching Nightmare Alley, the uh, Guillermo del Toro film. Yeah, and we went to the Alamo, and I had snacks, and that made this worth it. I really hope that we just can keep plugging like the theaters we go to, and eventually we'll be able to get like paid advertisement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or at, at, the, at the bare minimum, like one, one free ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be wonderful yeah if we could get anything that comes out of this podcast i i would hang that that free ticket right next to the 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 wish upon poster oh yeah we wouldn't even use it yeah exactly <laughs> like we made it boys we <laughs> right so uh i i like to do this every once in a while when when the mood strikes me and i feel like i have a good bit for it uh i have a pretentious calvin take oh i'm right re- i'm ready to hear so Del Toro delivers a dark tale exploring the deplorable side of humanity. He masterfully shows this visually when we see the lights of the neon Jesus saves sign have gone out. There is no God here. Jesus can't save you. Not on Nightmare Alley. <laughs> I feel like if he did it right, that's what I would say. <laughs> but I, I feel like it's just so obvious. Like I know. All, all of those, like, that's exactly what he was going for. Right. I just feel like he, it's, it's very ham handed. Um, yeah, especially like so the Jesus saves like sign that like that goes out and it's us saves. Yeah. And and in the end, no one saves him. Right. So I guess. I like <laughs> I don't know. Like I, the, just, the, I think I think I was trying to make something out of nothing because that's what pretentious Calvin would do. Yeah. <laughs> Prete- no, pretentious Calvin doesn't make something out of nothing. Pretentious Calvin makes something out of a lot of things that are there. And I take an extra, maybe one or two extra steps, but this would, but that filmmaker had already taken, had gone to great lengths to make something that was deep, uh, deeply symbolic and thematic with, with, um, well-minded motifs and nothing Guillermo del Toro does. Yeah. I was going to say that doesn't exist in this yeah, movie. That's, I mean, that's not who he is as a, as a filmmaker. I find it really weird that he made this movie because this is not suited to his talents. No. Um, yeah, I, I think because we're going to start with non-spoiler because this movie that just came out. Um, I think just a kind of a quick description of it is a guy down on his luck, needs work, runs into a carnival. You know, they, they offer him a, a meal and some, some work. He ends up kind of becoming interested in the carnival, so interested that he kind of picks up a, a skill, a trait, and then he kind of sets off to do his own show. And then after that, uh, he kind of uses his powers for no good and gets in over his head and uh, he's faced with his consequences at the end. And I think that's kind of just the basic outline of the story. Yeah. And that's, that feels like there's a lot to explore there. I, and somehow it's not <laughs> super interesting. I think I gave a, a about as accurate a description as I could and yeah. covered all the bases. Like, I mean, I it's, didn't leave much out. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I would say like my first impression of this movie going into this was I thought it was going to be the really interesting carnival atmosphere that, that all of the trailers had, had built up. And there was some other shots and, that are really from this movie is divided into two parts though. Essentially, um, yeah. Yeah. And some of the shots in the trailer are from part two, but I thought this was mostly going to be like a carnival movie, like, like dark, creepy, you know, it's the underbelly, the seedy underbelly of, of man, of human humanity uh being explored through the the goofiness of uh of vaudeville basically was i thought this was going to be because i mean if you look at too like where all of the uh like characters are like you've got willem dafoe ron perlman tony collette they're all in the carnival so i thought that was like going to be the point but that's not that doesn't end up actually really being the case 
Um, so yeah, I don't know what to think of this movie yet. I hope that I have a, a clear idea by the time we get to the to the end of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right now, it was just like it's engaging. There are good performances. Um, it's it feels very Del Toro in that um, everything is about the narrative, but. It's, it's the the main narrative is actually kind of lost for a little while. We don't realize that it's the main narrative until the second half of the movie, where yeah. there are fewer characters. Right. But we'll yeah. we'll get into more of those, like specifically, like why why that's weird. I don't usually look at a lot of trailers, and I I certainly maybe just see the first one that comes out. That's probably the most vague one, mm-hmm. and then I kind of stay away from the ones that show a lot more. But it did feel like it has this like all star cast and everything. And I was like, oh great, like. Tony Collette's in this, uh, Willem Dafoe's in this. I'll love it. Ron Perlman's in it. I think it'll be great. Yeah. And and they're in minor roles in the first half, and then they're non-existent in the second, and that, that bummed me out. I think there's, the the trailer's a little deceiving in, in kind of the story you think you're going to get. Uh, but my first impression of this is uh, it's a movie about a con man who has a chance at his big score. And what makes stories like that interesting, the same with like heist movies and things like that, is what are the clever ways that this character is going to come up with pulling off the heist or his big score or how is he going to run his racket? And my biggest problem with this movie is the main character, Stan, is he's spoon-fed everything he needs to pull off this big score and he still manages to, like, mess it up. Uh, so nothing is, like, earned in this. Uh, all the kind of relationships and consequences that fall apart for him at the end don't really seem to matter to me because kind of the build-up to him, like, achieving this big goal don't really feel like he had to go through anything to get it. Yeah, and that's was, kind of my big problem with this movie. It was almost like a magic act. Like, yeah, suddenly he gets it. Like, he just, he's like, he's like, his thing is um, being a mentalist. And like, just like partway through the movie, like suddenly it all clicks. And he's just like, can uh, pick apart a person based on how they stand, the clothes they wear. And he knows everything about them. Like, just because he got taught by one of the other carnies. Well, we conveniently get a two years later cut where... Apparently he's he's learned all that stuff and really honed his craft, but we don't ever really get to see it. It's just kind of well, like we hints did see at the, it. We did see the one. There's one, yeah. There's one part before that, but he's like a really master of his craft now, and it, the, the movie conveniently skips all of like the trial and error that he had to go through to like achieve that level of skill, and that 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 kind of stuff frustrates me. I get that you need to move the movie along, but it's just very convenient. Well, and I think that so it was actually interesting that uh, how they set that up. Uh, the guy who who teaches him says, and the way that, that he put it was, um, a a person is better at it the the more that they've had to run get ahead of the danger in front of them. And right. a lot of times that has to do with uh, um, mean moms, uh, abusive dads, and so that sets up that character. And which is really interesting. Then it's like why he's so good at it is because he had like a really really troubled troubled life um and why that just kind of explains how he can do all of these things and read people um i think that's interesting thematically but they kind of exist in two different like in two different ways like uh, or in two different instances like you have this this thematic through line that doesn't somehow connect with again like with 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 the with del toro's movies like the narrative uh, line through line doesn't actually meet the uh, thematic plot line. They're existing like in a dichotomy where they're mentioned here, and but the story's going on over here, and those paths never really cross. Yeah. Um, and we don't make those connections. We have to piece those things together and realize. I guess there was like there was something here for us to put together, but he didn't make the connection in his own movie. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that and why it feels disjointed is because this is 
it seems to be a theme with this movie is this is two different movies that are put together. Like it's a different movie in the first half than it is in the second half. Yeah. And it's just, it seems to be a directorial staple I'm starting to pick up on, I guess. Yeah. It's, he, he's a wild, wild director. Um, but yeah, like I, I kind of want to talk about the aesthetic right now because this doesn't feel like a Del Toro movie in terms of aesthetic. It's definitely missing because you always go, he's got like that big fantasy element to it. And so to have a movie that is totally lacks that is, is definitely something I wouldn't uh, expect him to move away from. So it was really interesting to see like just a straightforward, you know, takes place in the real world kind of story. Mm -hmm. But again, I think he said it just doesn't really feel suited to him because it felt like to me, this movie almost the whole way through is like, it felt like, man, one of the carnies should have like a power or something actually like some fantasy element to it. And I was like, man, that would have made this much more interesting to me, this feels like it has none of the interesting parts of Pan's Labyrinth, which are the fantasy elements, and it has all of the boring rebel plotline elements, and that's like part of like my trouble with this movie. Yeah, exactly, and it uh, it has that, and the the other part of it too is even he's really good at creating designs and set pieces, and so you you have a carnival, there's a lot of potential to make something really, really interesting. You didn't even need to stay necessarily period accurate because I don't think anything that Del Toro has ever done has really cared about period accuracy, more like uh, the seeming the seeming qualities of that period. Okay. You know what I mean? I have a note on that. We'll get to later about the dialogue, but we could oh, yeah. this part first. Uh, yeah, I have you ever seen... Um, the American Horror Story, the carnival season they did. I saw a couple episodes of that. So I, I don't love that show, but I think one thing that they nailed is like, you know, they had the bearded lady and, mm-hmm. you know, they have people with like oh, Siamese twins and stuff like that. This movie had like none of those like, and maybe that was a choice that he was like, I don't want to have like those uh, kind of iconic generic carnival elements. Maybe that wasn't the point, but it felt like that's part of what was missing to me. And that maybe that could have filled the gap of the fantasy element to be like, have more weird stuff in it. And that would have like, you know, scratched my itch as far as like a Del Toro movie goes. Yeah, exactly. It would have played to his his uh, to his strengths. Instead, we just get another CGI sky because he loves that. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's just everything is always like thundering and lightning because that creates the mood that he wants. Um, which is, I mean, that happened in Pan's Labyrinth. I'm almost positive that happened in um, Shape of Water. I'm sure Hellboy has that because that's just, but that's like a fantasy movie. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that does because it's like the end times. Like, yeah, actually, like, yeah, it served a plot point there, not necessarily a mood. (laughs) I, uh, stuff I do love about the aesthetic is I'm a big sucker for like 20s through 40s. I just love that look of that era. I love the music of that era. Mm -hmm. I love like the art deco architecture. That era just has like really, like, it, that always is going to win me over. So I love that aspect of this. One thing I was a little disappointed in was the costumes. I, you know, me, I'm, I'm a big buff for it. Um, Luis Sakita is a Canadian uh, costume designer, and he did uh, the costumes for The Shape of Water, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for his work in that film. And so I was expecting, I was like, yes, we're going to have, like, really awesome, like, your classic 40s costumes and stuff. And the only person who really has that is Kate Blanchett's character. Mm. I was kind of bummed by that. I... I just love the aesthetic of that era, and I feel like he could really punch it up again because he's kind of known for this kind of fantasy element. So like, you know, punch up the costumes more, you know. Like he's a he's a performer, so like you know, give him some more panache, you know. 
I was I was kind of let down by the costumes in this one. <laughs> it's funny that you say panache because isn't doesn't he ask that like he's like panache what is panache and she's like you're easy on the eyes right right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a little information on the score which uh, again this feels like very del Toro score. It has like ominous uh, musical elements that let you know that the bad guy is doing something bad or or, or something you know creepy is happening. It's just to really remind you of the thing that you're already watching is happening. Because uh, I, I just think there's nuanced ways to use those musical elements. He just never does that. Yeah. Because the character could literally be like, I am bad and I will carry out my wrongdoings. And then he also has the musical element with it. So it's just, it's always on the head to me. Um, but this was done by Nathan Johnson. He did the score for Knives Out and Looper. Hmm. And uh, he's also cousins of the director, Ryan Johnson, who did Knives Out and Looper. <laughs> and uh, he did that one shitty Star Wars movie that no one likes. The Last Jedi. Oh, I was about to say, there's nine of them. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to narrow it down. Actually, there's not even nine of them now. Isn't there 11? Because well, spinoff ones? Yeah. Solo and uh, Rogue One. Right. Um, yeah, but he did The Last Jedi and everyone hates that one. Yeah. Or you love it. Yeah, which is weird because they're all terrible. They're all equally not good. Um, I just think it's funny that like, the two films he's kind of known for doing scores for are ones that his cousin was directing. So he, yeah. he got the hookup. To, yeah, to exactly. Do a little and bit it, of nepotism yeah. never hurt anyone. It says like critically acclaimed score for Knives Out. I watched Knives Out. I don't remember anything about the score. So Interesting. I'll let that be known. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like it's, it's very Del Toro in that there's a lot of empty space in terms of sound, in terms of music, you know, we just let, we let our characters breathe and act and they're very engaging. They're very interesting. Um, so why we need to be forced into feeling a certain way, uh, at certain times is weird and why, like even the music that is happening is never memorable. Um, you know, it's not Hans Zimmer. It's not even like. A lot of times it doesn't even feel like it's there until you realize like it, you're being pushed by by music that, that wasn't there in the first place. Right. You know, like I already feel this. Why are you why are you telling me I should feel this way when I know what it, what to feel? Yeah, that's that's kind of yeah my problem with the way his scores tend to work in his movies. There is an appearance uh, of Chattanooga Choo Choo in this movie uh, when Molly's dancing with one of uh, her former friends from the the carnival they were working at. And Chattanooga Choo Choo's plan. That's one of my favorites. Oh. Uh, just because I just, again, I, I'm really into that era of music. So I heard that and I was like singing it along. I was trying to be quiet. I was like, Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> <laughs> Choo Choo me home. <laughs> I just love that song. So I was glad it made an appearance. That's the high point of the score for this uh, movie, I think, though. Yeah, I don't really remember anything else. I don't even remember like any of like the, like the, I mean, I feel like the trailer sometimes will give you like a clue as to like the the refrain that a Del Toro movie likes to use um, in terms of uh, melody. But I don't remember that. I don't remember yeah. anything about the about the score. I none, actually none hate sticks out. I hate scores or the music they use in trailers because it's it is so deceiving and it's used to you know excite people and ramp them up to go see the movie. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my sister about seeing Mother, and she looked up the trailer for it, and it was just like this really act like it, it was too much music and it was very horror music, but it was like faster paced, like something you'd hear in like a conjuring trailer. <laughs> and she was making a face and I was like, are you watching the mother trailer? Because I, I guarantee you it's already doing a really bad job of telling you what that film's about. Cause that movie has no score. So the, <laughs> yeah. fact, so the fact that they used the score or music in the trailer is really deceiving. And I think you could, you could 
say the same thing about this trailer. It's it's it, it, it bums me out when you can get hyped for something and then you go see it and you're like, this is not at all what I was expecting. Yeah, I feel like trailers have gotten like really, really, really bad. Um, like take even Dune, for example. Like we, we thought that whole movie was going to be built on cliches. I mean, they even changed uh, certain like lines of dialogue in the trailer to make it sound like it's going to be like a huge battle throughout the whole movie. Right. Despite we knew that it wasn't going to be because we knew that it was going to be the first half of the book, which we had read. And even still, the trailer tried to be something other than what the movie actually was it was like it was it felt like it was built for um an ad campaign on instagram you know what i mean like that's which is so why why do that and make a movie that's completely different if you knew that's how you were going to market it why make that movie yeah it's just it seems like studio meddling to promote a movie just to get butts and seats instead of to be like a, a really promote what you're actually putting out. Yeah. My, my big recommendation, I know we're getting off track. My big recommendation is just really don't watch trailers that much. I will like read a brief description on a movie. I am not a big fan of watching trailers because I don't like that kind of letdown you go through. But yeah, I, I that is one pro- like part of the problem with how this movie was put together. Yeah, I think like, yeah, stick to uh, a studio you, you like. Like we like A24s, uh, find directors that you like. Um, I think another good place is like finding critics that you like. And then if you seem to find uh, that you have similar taste to them, whatever they suggest, then then you just uh, you just start there. I don't right. know. Like, I don't know how how people like the way to find movies now other than trailers, because trailers used to be so much fun. Yeah. And they're very they're they're not right now, which is so I don't know how you can how that can happen. It's not like movies are different. Yeah. Like why are trailers suddenly they've all been marvelized. Yeah. It's just a spectacle, you know. Although I really do want to see the uh that movie Red Rocket. Yeah. Um That's and I just want to see it because the trailer looks amazing and I bet that movie is exactly like that trailer. Right. Uh so more in the aesthetic, one thing I really want to talk to you about because I love your take on like language and how it's used in film is the dialogue in this movie doesn't feel authentic at all to me. It's not even close to the level of something like uh, The Witch or The Lighthouse. And I know we've talked about those movies and how much research and effort went into making that dialogue fit and having the actors really embody that character. And a big part of that is the dialogue they have. But there's just so many lines in this that I, I just think uh, like are cringy. Um, I think Molly says she's like, uh, oh, everything's Jake over here. But then she goes on to kind of speak more like modern English or, uh, oh, I've known dames like you before. And, uh, oh, and Stan is like kind of being criticized on how he makes his money. He's like, I know I'm on the make. I know what I'm up to. It's just, it's a lot of dialogue that is, feels vaguely period accurate, but it's then followed up by dialogue that isn't period accurate or, or doesn't seem to fit. So it, it, all the dialogue really feels like characters, like actors just saying lines. Mm-hmm. And and when I say that, I mean like the dialogue that's supposed to be period accurate feels like actors just saying it. Yeah, and not that every performance is bad, and it's just wooden actors saying things. It's just those lines always come off really wrong to me because I know I've seen movies with really well written dialogue that is period accurate, and I've heard people deliver in a way that makes me believe that that's how they talk. And this movie had none of that for me. Yeah, like they all have different accents. Um, they also don't have what I would consider like I I think it's the the transatlantic accent. That's the accent that a lot of Hollywood spoke with, and a lot and that would be what was more 
common in the the 40s 50s 60s i don't know for sure um but yeah the, i mean whatever you would think of as uh an accent for the 40s um nobody nobody here speaks with that yeah not a single person not even kate blanchett and her wonderful um very very over dramatic performance that's very suited for stage it's it's wonderful it doesn't belong here she does not have that accent either so i almost wanted to yeah. start instead of a calvin pretentious take i almost want to say we watched nightmare alley featuring kate blanchett overacting because that's <laughs> what it felt like and it does it feels like a big uh, stage play of something that happened in the 40s and it, it feels like it's just very stereotypical of something that you would imagine that that movie had but it's just so overdone in this that like i can't take her character very seriously which is I'm really bummed by that because I like Kate Blanchett a lot. Yeah. And I really don't like her character. All right. So to wrap up aesthetic, let's talk about Del Toro's camera work. We've been critical of him in Pan's Labyrinth and especially Kronos. So. Especially Kronos. So I, mean, I. Yeah. We can move on to that now. Um, I think we, let's start off on a lighter note. What were there shots that you found uh, that oh, you like this word uh, visually arresting? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't necessarily call this visually arresting. Um, okay, one I did find visually arresting was when he's going to, uh, what's the older guy's place? Oh, when Stan is going to see Ezra, who's played by Richard Jenkins. Yeah. yeah. The, like, wealthy, kind of eccentric, yeah, and he's going to, like, do a, a reading for him, yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting shot. I just didn't like the way the camera moved to get there. Like, I wish that we had just, that it had been a static shot and um, Bradley Cooper just walked into the frame. That would have been really visually interesting. Right. Um, going out and zooming out like that and then not pausing. Like, they didn't give that, there wasn't enough time for that shot to breathe to mean anything other than, like, look at this weird-ass, like, um, reception desk. Like, that's all that was right. because we didn't we didn't hang on that. The other shot that I thought was really interesting, so mild spoiler, there's a character that dies partway through the first part, and we see uh, someone delivering the bad news in the background, but we're hanging on over like this picnic table. It's just like a table. And we see that going on in the background. It's a, it's a very non del Toro way of how of playing with perspective. Most of the time, if, if someone is talking on screen, we can hear them. We're right up in their face. We're right. all up in their business, but we kind of heard it in the background. It's really more about their expression and just the, how distant the news felt to the, to us. As yeah. The audience. There's a scene where uh, Stan is talking to um, Willem Dafoe's character, uh, Clem. Uh, he's just kind of pulled off a little magic trick, and it, it's at the same thing. They're they're like underneath the uh, the tent and at the picnic tables, and Stan is literally telling Clem what he just did. The scene that we just saw, and the camera is so close on their faces, like unbelievably close, like in an uncomfortable way. So I think that's like. That's more of a Del Toro shot I'm used to seeing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and I can tell that because I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a weird one in in that it felt like he was telling that to everybody at one point, and, but it was really about him. And then we zoomed in and he, and he got like, and Willem Dafoe got closer and it was like, just the two of them were talking. That's how it felt. But then other characters started everyone, like Everyone cheering. reacts. Everyone reacts to it. It's so odd. That it's, was that was that needed to be a cut. Those that that uh, background noise needed to be cut as well because it's it's very very strange. Um, but yeah, so those are the those are the only and maybe you know like he sets fire to a house in the beginning and he walks away. 
I, I don't find that particularly interesting um, on itself. It's not even, the frame itself is not even composed in an interesting way. So it's just a house on fire, which is cool to look at. But I mean, lots of, lots of movies do that. I really liked, there's one scene where uh, Stan and Molly, he's kind of mad at her because she messed up part of the act. And they go back into their dressing room, mm. and it's a door like that you think you'd see it, like a like a, into a kitchen at like a restaurant where yeah. it's got like the porthole on it. Yeah, like and a you can see into window. it, right? And I love that uh, they walk in, and you just see it through the window, the little porthole. And I love the sound design of that too, because mm. their voices drop and everything. So that's a lot of stuff really working together, and that's why I think it's a really. I was like, oh, I re- I like this scene. This is really well done, and it's a bummer because that's like kind of the only one I really latched onto. And it's kind of not a really big scene in any way. And the fact that like that's your best shot in the movie, like you gotta you gotta pump it up. You know, you, you gotta punch up some other scenes in a visually interesting way. That way my favorite scene isn't a tiff taking place inside of a dressing room, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I wish that that like what what I wish that shot had been was the uh door shuts and I love how it's like a suction like yeah. thing. It's like they're very insulated, like they're in their own little their own little space. Yeah, sound design was great for that part. Yeah. I wish the door shut and we just watched them fight. We don't even need to hear what they're talking about. We can just see it doesn't because it doesn't matter what what they were actually arguing about. Um it's just the fact that, oh, maybe this wasn't the right choice for Molly to have made is, is really all it is. And I guess we're going to start moving into spoilers here. But um, so, so yeah, it's just to show discord there. And if we just hung there for like 10, 15 seconds and watched them get mad at each other, that would have been the most interesting shot in the entire movie. Yeah, that's an Ari Aster kind of shot. Like that's a uh, something that helps tell the story without throwing it in your face what's going on mm-hmm. you know and it's nice to see like one of those pop up in this movie but to me it was just one everything else is like pretty clear to me and if we're going to talk about stuff that's pretty clear we should say we're moving on to spoilers now uh i want to start with the characters i think the biggest problem i have and i just want to move right into bradley cooper's character stan is he is referred to as like boy and son and sunny and young buck Bradley Cooper is 46 years old, and it makes no sense to me. This is the an unbelievable miscast to me, and it's not because I think Bradley Cooper is a bad actor. This or is, that he didn't even perform well. Yeah, I, I think needing to pull off a character who is should be in like early 20s, he does a pretty good job of that. Um, but this is not written for a 46-year-old man. And this needs to be played by like an Ansel Elgort or like a Timothy Charlemagne or uh, I think you said yeah, like Tom yeah, Holland. Yeah, or like uh, I think a fun one would be Daniel Radcliffe. You know, a little bit older because I don't even think this character should be in the thir- in their thirties. They should be like early twenties, maybe maybe mid to late twenties. But at least Daniel Radcliffe could look like that, and he certainly yeah. has the range to pull off something like that. Yeah, he was in, uh, what is that, Swiss Army Man not too long ago. I mean, he's he looks young. He, oh, yeah. He can pull off, like, boyish charm, which is another thing that's built into this character and written into it is he has, like, kind of a... Uh, like a, a wonder about him of of the carnival and he seems to be like caught up in the in the magic of it and he's like oh like i i want to help make a new uh, a new act and i want to be involved in and oh i want to dance on the merry-go-round and stuff like he he plays it as someone who should be a young man caught up in the wonder of it yeah but he's 46 fucking years old yeah he makes acting, no sense yeah <laughs> he's acting like ryan gosling in the notebook like that is 
that's kind of like the character I was thinking, like, yeah, like just I have all of these ideas and all of this charisma, but really because he is so, um, A, so uh, defined in terms of musculature, um, he, he already feels like he's in his element. Like, yeah. he, like he has lived a whole life, and now we get this slick-talking guy. We just we don't really see the evolution of the character because we assume that he's already an adult and an yeah. adult man with a, with a lot of past. That's part of like his transition and stuff. And, and I think another problem I have with this movie is how like it treats time. I feel like I didn't know how much time had passed at all. Just, it seems to move right along. And I, I didn't know I was like, have weeks passed? Have it has days? Has it been days? Like it seems to move along really quickly. And so any kind of change that takes place in his character doesn't really add up to me. And then you have that two-year leap forward where he's adopted kind of a new persona and his a new accent that sucks. Um, and I think, you know, that's supposed to show an evolution in his character as well. But, like, someone who is an adult, like a 46-year-old, wouldn't have some dramatic change in two years because they're already grown. That kind of evolution or change in a character in two years, kind of an abrupt change, I can handle that better if it's someone who looks like a young man. Mm-hmm. And so I could totally buy that if it's if it's a younger actor. I was so distracted by Bradley Cooper acting like a boy and being called boy all the time physically doesn't make any sense. Like you would you wouldn't be spoken to that way. Like a full grown man doesn't just like isn't just find a thing called Sonny and Young Buck all the time. Yeah, exactly. He also just doesn't talk to any of the characters when he first gets on. Like, you know, they tell him like, oh, you're looking for work or what are you doing back here? And then they tell him like what, you know, they'll pay him, what the, where they're going, the job, that sort of stuff. Um, but he doesn't actually respond to any of them. And I guess that was supposed to show that he was like just a kid lost, basically. Just It just looks like he's a mute. Again, I just don't, this is the biggest miscast i've ever seen and the fact that guillermo del toro gets paid a ton of money and gets a huge budget to make these movies i don't understand how you read this script because he was one of the writers on it i don't know how he imagined bradley cooper in this role at all yeah yeah and i don't i and speaking of um uh distracting miscasts how about everybody uh, Willem Dafoe is scene stealing. Tony Collette is scene stealing. Ron Perlman is just Ron Perlman. He's just like that magnanimous presence on screen. Yeah, and we feel like these these characters must have weight, but they're they're treated like they do, but they don't mean anything to the story really. Right. Um, there's only one character that matters in the first half, other than maybe Molly, um, and that's Pete. David Strathen, and I really like him. Uh, he's an actor in uh, one of my favorite series and series of books, uh, The Expanse. And so I was really excited to see him. And then I was like, oh, I know this guy. Like, I, I was really excited to see him. And I think he's great in this. And I think one of the best parts of this movie is his relationship with uh, Stanton. Yeah. And especially, like, when you find out that Stanton, like, had, like, a terrible relationship with his father. Like, how you're, you're trying to fill that role with, a, with another model. And right. that's what and that's what Pete was and Pete teaches him and he's trying to keep uh, Stan from going down the same path that he did. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing that could play out there thematically. Um, we just kind of missed the mark because we're too busy dealing with Tony Collette. We're too busy talking to Willem Dafoe and um, because uh, it's Willem Dafoe doing a half-ass uh, romance with Molly. Like it's just. <laughs> Yeah, so you have all of these characters that are just really distracting. Like, they're they're really powerful presences, 
And they don't mean anything to the final message of the movie. I got really like carnival RPG video game vibes from it. It's like, go meet Clem, the director of the carnival. And you have a, a little bit of dialogue with him. And it was like, yeah. go meet Ron Perlman, strongman. And you have a little bit of dialogue with him. And it, that's kind of how it felt. Cause it's just like little snippets of these characters, but they don't really mean anything. And it's just like flavor text for the movie, which is unfortunate if you have a, a cast like this good, Willem Dafoe should never be flavor text for your movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, it's, it's amazing that you say that because I get, I well, I mean, we talked about it in Pan's Labyrinth. Like Guillermo del Toro's uh, style is more suited to the the world building of video games. Right, yeah. He would be, he would make, if if all he ever made in his career were video games, we he would have been, um, I think he would go down as a, a pioneer of the medium for video games, for story storytelling. He'd probably be one of the all-time greats. Somehow he's like a, a great in terms of the, in terms of like critical film as well, which I don't understand because there's nothing there like super redeeming about his uh about his stories or his movies right. or um or his camera work so it, it's not suited to this medium and like you said like he just he just has all of these ideas like i have this quirky little clem character that you can play willem dafoe and then i haven't rounded out why he fits into any into this movie at all yeah it needs to be like an eight-hour movie to really explore all of the things that we've that we've opened here just in the first half honestly yeah. like the whole first half of the of the carnival could be its own mini series because there's a lot going on in terms of like what geeks are um you know how tarot works why um we haven't moved from this homestead area for what is maybe a season that was one of my problems with how i don't really understand how time how much time has lapsed in this movie is because it does it all takes place in one spot and i think i definitely get that he is like a now a veteran carney if it was like oh this is our third stop or like oh man like this is i can't believe i've done a whole season with you guys we're gonna break down for the winter now like then i'd be like okay he's like he's been there a while but it, it's all in one spot yeah and i don't know if maybe i missed up on some like visual cues of like people growing beards out or like hair got longer like maybe i missed that but like i i have no concept of how the time worked in this um but yeah i we we had mentioned earlier about stan just kind of wants a job and he kind of just kind of falls into being a carny and that kind of leads me to tony collette's character xena the seer she brings him in to like take a bath and then gives him a hand job and she's like oh maybe you'll pedal my wear like maybe you'll, you'll work for me and it seems like she's trying to get him to like convince him to work for work for her he already needed a job and he already showed interest in working for the carnival so i don't understand why that scene took place and then i didn't really feel like there was any more like for me it didn't feel like there was more like any sexual tension going on there because she's she's married to pete and there wasn't like a i was thinking there's gonna be a big dramatic scene where she was like you killed him you killed him because you want me or something because mm -hmm. you know pete dies later or in his the movie. secrets yeah and, and so i thought maybe there's gonna be more drama between them but there's really nothing i think it was just kind of the scene to start him off and that's like all i really got out of it which is a criminal underuse of tony collette yeah <laughs> absolutely i that's not really the role i saw for tony collette as being seductress to a 46 year old man uh, again th uh, that's another problem i have is that again that scene works out so much better if it's a young man who's like out of his element and older woman's come on to him and he's like oh yeah I'll, I'll stay at the carnival i'll work for you like yeah you know he's he's got a new sense of himself now like someone showing interest into in him 
but it's Bradley Cooper and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. And so I, the only thing I, I would say that it makes the, it makes sense why she was trying to get him to pedal for her is because, um, it was either Willem Dafoe's character, Clem, or it was, uh, Ron Perlman's character, Bruno, who was like, we're going to meet up with another carnival, um, somewhere else. And I think that's what, what they were they were a part of the other carnival and so they wanted him to stay on and that's why she was seducing him but then yeah they don't move the whole time and he ends up leaving everyone yeah so it doesn't matter like you should realize okay if he's gonna leave everyone then that's a really confusing scene just in general it doesn't even it doesn't matter to character development um it doesn't it doesn't mean anything because you could just have them talking and uh, him express interest in mentalism. And yeah. that's all that's you all needed. needed. You honestly, and I uh, again, you don't even need Tony Collette's character at all. It can just be like Pete and Bradley Cooper and uh, Stan just wants to be with around Pete and learn from him because he, you know, he's trying to fill the void of, uh, of a father figure that inflicted like deep psychic wounds on him. That is such a good point. Yeah, she doesn't need to be in this movie at all. Because again, I think the best relationship in this movie is his relationship with Pete. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, cut cut her out and just have it be Pete. That makes so much more sense. Because yeah. I do. I think this movie is cluttered with its characters. So taking one out who really doesn't mean anything, because even when Pete dies, it's not even like a big dramatic scene when she's crying. It's like, I don't really care because you haven't really explored the relationship between uh, Tony Collette's character and Pete. Yeah, it's really about how they all function relative to Stan. Um and, yeah. and and it's not even necessarily that they, that these that there are too many characters because that's not the case. It's that the characters all work within their own little vacuum. They they're in their own self interest. They're really about their their quirks and not about a theme um, relating back to Bradley Cooper. Right. Um, Clem kind of works that way when he's explaining geeks and how that ultimately leads to how. Um, uh, Bradley uh, Stan ends up in the end of the film but you can like that's like the only one Tony Clett is weird Bruno is weird the little uh, the uh, you know even the electro girl like all of none of it really matters and you can um, get rid of all of it and put it into Pete yeah like so you can't say so so when we say that these characters don't matter it's that um, they're not working for the the general through line of the of the narrative they're not working for the general through line of of uh, the theme and they're pulling away from all of those things and all of those they're, they're not they're not necessary for those characters to be in to move the plot right there's not a single point uh, of any of those characters like i exist because the plot moves forward now other than pete so if you throw all of the instances that happen within the carnival into pete then this movie works like a thousand times better yeah even though we go into part two and it's it's not good (laughs) um speaking of characters that i don't think matter as much at least as i think the story is hoping they would is uh molly played by rooney mara uh she's the love interest just kind of generic love interest thrown in i don't think she's in a big portion of the first half which is why i don't understand why she runs off with him like uh bruno's gonna beat up stan because He's, he wants to take her away or they're going to go and start their own act. And she just goes like, oh, I love him. Stop. And I was like, when did she fall in love with him? When did that happen? Because they 
they have like one scene they share where he's going to make the, he has an idea for a new act for her. He uh, tries to dance at the merry-go-round with her and she runs off. And then he's like, come on, come away with me. She's like, okay, let's do it. I'm ready. And then all of a sudden she's in love with him. And it doesn't make any sense to me because then she's also barely in the second half of the movie. And there's kind of a, a come to Jesus moment where Stan has to kind of face his consequences. One of the consequences is that Molly leaves him. But it means nothing to me because their relationship, their romance, hasn't been built up in any way. Like, I don't feel anything when she leaves. I'm actually glad she leaves because he's, he's like, he's not a good person in the second half. I was like, finally, she did it. Yeah, he's just terrible to her. I think, and I think it all, like, again, like all of the women here function as an aspect in relation to Bradley Cooper's or uh, Stan's development Um, and what he how he starts is like looking for, you know, love or whatever and affection, trying to fill the void in his heart. And then ultimately he just wants to keep upping his game in terms of being a mentalist. And that's ultimately how he catches on Kate Blanchett because now he's, he's moved on to a higher form of, um, of self delusion. Right. Basically it's like how, how ridiculous can this get? Like you were a fun toy to play with for a while, but now here's Kate Blanchett and um yeah what is her name dr lilith ritter um yes and so she's she's a ridiculous character but when you think of all of them as functioning as um within the context of how he's dealing with his own mind how he's dealing with uh the things he grew up with they make sense but you have too many characters for you, for you to really follow that along, you right. know, in terms of, in terms of a narrative, like it, it doesn't make sense um, because we have all of these other characters. We got rid of them, then it's fine. In terms of theme, it's also heavy handed in some parts and not connected in other parts. Right. So in a, a very del Toro way of going about this. So if we are moving into Kate Blanchett's uh, Dr. Ritter character, I have, I have a, a quote I found from kateblanchett.com, which is a real thing. And it looks like it's authentic, like it's something that she is. Uh, wow. it, it's not like a fan made kateblanchett.com. Like this seems, seems like a real thing. Um, huh. It says, uh, Kate Blanchett, who brings a mix of strength and smoldering heat as the film's reverse femme fatale, the brilliant avenging psychologist, Dr. Lilith Ritter. So I don't understand two words there. Uh, a avenging. Um, because if she's avenging anything, it's pettiness. It's a it's a slight wrong that she is that uh Stan has done to her during one of his shows. I guess maybe she's getting because that's really that's really kind of the twist at the end of this. Maybe not a twist, but reveal is that she's been doing this all along to get back at him for uh two seconds of uh, of uh, maybe like shame or embarrassment that she had to go through <laughs> yeah during one of his shows and now she's come up with this elaborate plan to get back at him my real big problem is the use of like reverse femme fatale mm. the definition of femme fatale is an attractive and seductive woman especially one who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who has become involved with her that is literally what Kate Blanchett's character is in this movie yeah that Absolutely. Like that there's I don't know what you mean by reverse femme fatale. It's not even like anti femme fatale. So I don't like you know what I mean? Like I don't even understand why you would use the the word choice of reverse because that doesn't make any sense to what 
what you're even trying yeah. to say. And you didn't even define it. Like she's she's absolutely a femme fatale. This is uh, a noir film in a lot of uh, a lot of places. But especially when it comes to lighting on her, she has these weird like half lit faces oh, all yeah. the time. It just to show like, oh, she's mysterious and seductive. She talks literally like what you just did too, like the very noir like forties film. Like it, yeah. she talks like that even. She's like literally the only one that's yeah. even doing any of that. That's again, that's why I feel like some of the dialogue, like a lot of the dialogue and the accents feel so out of place because, uh, and like I mentioned before, like Stanton has like that. I keep saying Stanton. His name is Stanton, but he's referred to as Stan in the movie. So I'm just going to keep saying Stanton. Yeah, it's, it's both. But like, yeah, he picks up an accent for when he's doing his act, and then the rest of the time he just speaks normally. And she's really the only one who like really commits. That's why that's why I refer to it as overacting. Yeah, because, because like, I just she's really so that. out of place in in her own period. <laughs> yeah, like um, she's not doing a bad job. I just feel like that's what she was told to do, and like really, really gave it her all. Uh, but it, it does it feel so out of place in this movie because no one else is doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so the entire and why he even like entrusts her with all of the money in the first place you know i didn't understand that like she's like you don't even uh you didn't you don't even, even know, know me. me yeah and she's like yeah and he's like yeah i do you're uh you're bad just like me and wow okay so that means why are you trusting her yeah that's the yeah. that's a terrible like yeah you that should be a red flag in his own head like, yeah you i should, don't trust like, myself so why would i trust it to her yeah and if i yeah if i don't if i wouldn't trust me then like why would you tr- so yeah it's like it's weird like it's building up the myth of like oh i've got everything figured out i know you're bad i yeah. know you're gonna double cross me and i'm one step ahead and then he's like surprised that she right. double crosses him in the end like that that was that was set up from uh, at the beginning, like when we first met her character, that we knew she was going to be like that femme fatale character because of the way she's lit, the way she's posing problems to him. Oh, she's always like sitting down and like crossing her legs seductively. She does it like four times when they first meet. Like, uh, not when they first meet, when he goes to her office to meet with her the first time. Mm-hmm. She's always like laying back on the chair and crossing her legs. She's she's the definition of a femme fatale. So I don't understand like that take on it. Um. I do like that scene a lot where they, it's kind of their first meetup. And the reason I like it is it's kind of this cool, like sizing each other up thing. Cause I think they're both like psychoanalysts in their own way. Absolutely. It's just their, their practice is different. Their technique is different. And then like how they put it to use is different. Yeah. But it's the same grift. Yeah. And so I like, I like kind of their, they're both, they're both picking each other apart in ways and they're both like discovering different things about each other and themselves. So that is kind of, and I love her office. It's it's just so uh, awesome. Forties, I Abs- love it. Absolutely. If there was one thing that was created well, it's everything to do with Kate Blanchett. Like she, um, everything with Doctor Lilith Ritter is wonderfully designed, wonderfully. Um, uh, I wouldn't say shot, but I mean it's visually arresting to be in there just because it's so. It's so ostentatious. Oh yeah, re- especially compared to everything else yeah. in the movie. Uh, I, I mean, I think even like the the millionaire whatever guy, like he has like a garden and that's it. But like the most imposing set in the whole movie is Ritter's office. Absolutely. I, I guess you kind of compare it to Pan's Labyrinth in the same way because I really like the Pale Man's like big dining room. Oh, yeah. Whereas like there is nothing. It's not filmed in a way that makes it interesting. It's just what you're the set is just so cool. And it's mm-hmm. and it's just I just love the way it's all put together. And like, I don't think 
Ritter's office is filmed in a uh, an especially like a ingenious way, but it's just so cool and it's just so forties and it's just so like it, it it as soon as you walk in you know that like she's formidable just because of the stuff around her and like the office that she has and everything and then like her character like kind of really brings that out. So I like that scene a lot. That's probably to me the high point of the movie mm-hmm. is the interaction between them. It only really the best interactions is when they're both together in that office and they're picking each other apart, like diagnosing each other. And I like that a lot. That's the high point of the movie to me. Yeah. And it would be great too if like, we we honestly don't need Molly. Like honestly, we need part A with Pete and we need part B with, with uh, Dr. Ritter. Those two, you have the makings of an unbelievably good movie. Because you have him dealing with his with some of his father stuff, oh, ultimately yeah. killing him again. Even though, so even though he was trying to do things good or right or like learn from someone and create a bond with uh, an older man, he still ends up killing him, whether on purpose or an accident um, or like subconsciously on purpose. I think it's ambiguous because again, the score picks up when he, he brings him the bottle of, of liquor and he knows he's been drinking too much, mm-hmm. and the score it like he's like just staring off to the side of the camera menacingly and the ominous music builds up and it's like you know that something bad is going to happen yeah i mean you knew dying yeah right and you knew it was going to happen in the in the, the beginning when clem tells him that the two different colors of of uh, boxes right hold different types of alcohol and so you knew he was you were he was going to kill him i like the idea of he killed him accidentally on purpose yeah because he wants to have the the book with all the secrets in it and he wants to be the new like a. Uh, mentalist yeah and the other thing is too is like so he has such a tortured relationship with his father that anything that feels like a fatherly relationship like that would instantly for someone that's been abused that would be like oh i don't like this situation i know exactly what's about to happen next so i'm going to get in front of it that wouldn't be so interesting in terms of what we're talking what the the pieces that we set here for theme and for um our, the overall message of the film if that had been the point and we didn't have Molly and we didn't have Clem and we didn't have Bruno and we didn't have any, um, uh, Xena, you could really make something compelling here and does not matter how old Bradley Cooper is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, then I, yeah. All right, go ahead. No, but then I love the idea of then having Dr. Ritter. Cause I think towards the end, she's like, you've confused me as both your mother and like uh, a lover or something like that. And, it, you know, kind of bringing up that you have mommy issues, too, because he talks about, he's like, uh, she asks him if, oh, your mother's beautiful. And he's like, yes, to me. And, um, you know, his mom has always been like the the parent that he cared about most. Like he thinks like his dad is a drunk and, you know, he hates his father. And I think he kind of wears his father's watch as like kind of a like a trophy, you know, like, yeah, like he's got like power over him, like he won. Uh, but he really cares about his mom. And I think that might lend to why he trusted uh, Dr. Ritter with the money because if she is like a motherly figure to him he would trust her he would believe that he that she has his best interest in mind so then when she betrays him at the end there's like it's, I think there's supposed to be a big heartbreak dramatic scene there mm-hmm. but it's just so obvious that like I don't care about it um, but I do like that idea a lot I think yeah I think the movie becomes much better if it hinges on his relationship with Pete and Dr. Ritter and then the movie being split into essentially two halves also like thematically makes more sense to me like he's dealt with one part of his his past with his father and now he's dealing with another part of his past and his relationship with his mother i like that thematically so much better than what we got 
So thank you yeah. for making this Guillermo del Toro movie better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the pieces are there. It's just so cluttered and none of them are connected and none of them are explored deep enough. Like, and there are parts where Ritter actually explains everything like that's going on so, uh, psychically with him um, because, you know, we talk about we talk about uh, a lot of psychic elements in terms of film representation um, as it relates to the creation of narrative, not whether this is real objective science or not, because that's I don't I don't think it, it is and it doesn't need to be either. It's just the way that you can create interesting characters um, and how they deal with other uh, like especially with main characters. Um so she explains all of those things. It's clear that he understood the character that he was creating. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and you really, like, the, the, what was really interesting, too, was, like, the expl- explanation of the geek, how you get him hooked. Yeah. And then and it, you're just feeding them a little drop here, a little drop here. And that was basically every uh, consult that he did. You know, like, yeah. you're getting a little bit of power. You don't actually drink anything. It's not the alcohol. It's all of... It's it's all the the lust of power. Yeah. How you're getting how you're uh, how she was working him, turning in him into a geek until he ultimately breaks down, like in covered in blood and all of the money. Um, yeah. Just like like now, that was his chicken. So we we talked about kind of in the spoiler free section that this is a movie kind of essentially about his big score and how he's going to pull it off. I want to move into that and then kind of into the end. Essentially, the the way he's going to pull off. This is by like he's using Dr. Ritter's information because she's been the therapist for high profile uh, members of that of that town of that society. And he's going to use that information essentially to con them into thinking that he's talking to their loved ones and he's being paid a insane amount of money for these private sessions. And all we're really told this is when he meets um, Richard Jenkins character, Ezra, who is like that eccentric wealthy man who had a, a woman that he forced to get an abortion and she died and he feels all this guilt for it. So he's doing sessions with him and he's going to, yeah, like I said, he's going to make an insane amount of mon- money and he needs to materialize this woman that he betrayed and, and he feels all this guilt about and the whole goal is to like absolve him of that guilt. My big problem with this is, like I said, the, the whole fun of like the heist or the big score movie is what's the clever way that Stan is going to find out how to con these guys it sucks because he just gets all the information directly from D- Dr. Ritter. And so there, there's, there's no stakes to this movie because it's not, it, you don't find out in a fun way how he's going to pull it off. And then the only kind of consequence you get told is that Ezra keeps telling him, he's like, oh, we'll take care of you. If, 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 you, do, if you do wrong by me, bad thing will happen to you. That's essentially what like, the consequence we're told. And we're literally told that like, watch out or bad will happen. And it's, literally as simple as that and that's why this movie has no stakes and no drama when it gets to the end the the reason i don't think it has a lot of stakes or drama at the end is mostly because uh the way that they decided to actually materialize her is has zero showmanship which is what everything he was trying to give to the carnival while he was there why he was uh really pushing the boundary on all of his acts um when he uh and molly eloped um, and she just shows up in a dress with blood and she's like, 
and she's just like 30 feet away like oh yeah don't go don't go touch her oh yeah yeah i love that he's like don't 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 get any closer please please you'll ruin my whole you'll ruin my con if you get any closer yeah you might as well just said that like like, what was he thinking was going to happen right someone that is so distraught that they're literally trying to um manifest the 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 image or the uh actual person like the corporeal form uh the person that they have languished over for 30 years you don't think they're gonna go up and touch them right yeah that's ridiculous i think um dr ritter even says he's like unpredictable yeah like like we're told everything you need to know about this guy like of course that was never gonna work yeah which is ridiculous that 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 they said that unpredictable is wanting to touch the woman that he 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 killed by forcing an abortion on her and feels extreme guilt over that leads to a brutal death scene of ezra yeah okay let's and i thought we were gonna get through the whole well i know we didn't get we had the chicken head ripping scene um and then we have the murder suicide yeah we have the murder suicide we have uh um him smashing in the face of ezra him running over the face of that other dude it's ezra's bodyguard yeah and then he gets shot his ear shot off yeah there was a good amount of violence it just took a while to get there but it's also like it's ridiculous yeah it you lose all sense of like maybe it works a little bit in pan's labyrinth this ridiculous uh the the bottle smashing scene in um pan's labyrinth works because you really set the 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 level of sadism that this character has oh for vidal yeah yeah It, it works because vidal is ultimate evil yeah and I don't think that Stan is supposed to be ultimate evil. So when he beats a guy's face and it doesn't make, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And when he then runs over his bodyguard, it's also like, what, where is this coming from? Yeah. This is not typical of a noir film. Everything is supposed to be happening like in the shadows, not squirting blood out of the, the, <laughs> the sinuses. Don't get me exposed. wrong. I don't mind gratuitous violence. But it also, I was just like, wait, wow, he's just really going at it. Like, they're just really, really pumping up the vibe. It felt almost like a, a Quentin Tarantino movie where, you know, they have to have the big action set piece at the end where there's just squibs, squib packs going off everywhere and every, there's blood being poured all over the place. And it, it felt like maybe a more toned down version of that, but it also didn't really feel like it felt like it fit. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to say, I think part of the reason why stan reacts that way is because this is supposed to be a story about like a man manifesting his own destiny so there's a quote by del toro where he says nightmare alley is a story about destiny about a character that could change his life and yet his hubris is so strong it becomes destiny the city is a ruthless place people that are trapped inside they are incapable of seeing the good in themselves people use people to destroy each other and so i think the story i think what he really went for was the idea of He's manifesting his own destiny because he's so strong-willed and he's, he has so much ambition and he will do whatever it takes to achieve that. And I think that's what kind of the finale of this is supposed to be is like he, it didn't really go the way he planned it to, but he's still so committed to this that he will kill and do whatever it takes to achieve that final goal. But I didn't feel that in the movie at all. Like he was just someone who was so hell-bent on being the best or, or successful I didn't get that at all. Yeah, and I think it, like what what I mentioned uh, about 
I think the whole movie can be summed up by what Pete was saying. What what makes a good mentalist is someone who, as a child, was trying to stay ahead of uh, the bad things in their life. That's absolutely what. Uh, that's absolutely what was happening with uh, like why he's so good at it and why he keeps pushing it. It's like he keeps he keeps wanting to overcome his past, and it has. It has nothing really to do with ambition. It just has everything to tr- trying to to fill the the hole in his heart. Yeah, it, it. Keep referencing Pan's Labyrinth in our review of that, but we talked about how he came out and said like these fantasy elements are real. This is this is a part of the movie, and we were like, well, then you missed the mark because we can come up with all these reasons why they don't feel real and why they don't seem to fit. And so to come out and say like this is a movie about a man's hubris and kind of willing his destiny into reality i think if you want a movie like that go watch the prestige uh with christian bale and hugh jackman a hundred percent and i drew so many parallels between this movie and that one. Oh yeah um uh, i think one of the things that makes that movie so good is all of like the training and uh kind of the working around the problems they have for these tricks they're going to pull off because they're two rival magicians trying to become the greatest magician and that's the clever part of that movie about that that's missing from this movie. Stan doesn't have to do anything clever or figure anything out about how he's going to get his big score. But Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale in The Prestige are going through all these little things to figure out how are they going to achieve their ultimate goal of being the best magician. And I think the idea of that Guillermo del Toro brings up in his own quote about it being about ambition and achieving and like willing your destiny are totally missed on me. Yeah, because that you haven't... you. There, I, I can't think of a single time that he actually cares about any of that when all of the other uh, motivations for him are just the fact that he came from a broken household. Like, he's a terrible person. Like, he killed his father by uh, t- stealing his blanket and opening up the window. Like, that's that's it. Like, we, we get everything from that. That has nothing to do with ambition. That has everything to do with a, a tortured relationship that you are to the point that you would rather watch your, your father die. That's yeah. not ambition. Right. And I think that whole scene is more about vengeance for his mom and how his dad mistreated her and them. But yeah, but it yeah. doesn't... It but doesn't, it's sadistic. Yeah. It doesn't like play a role in how do I become the greatest uh, mentalist, you know? Yeah. Or how do I even become anything, you know? It's not like he's... He was he's living out from under his father's shadow. It's not like his father was anything. Um, I mean, the only thing that you can really connect with that is that, like, you know, he 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 said, like, his father wasn't man enough to keep his mom around. And oh, right. You can think the same thing about why Molly left. Like, he wasn't man enough to keep her around. He's just reliving the same thing over and over. But that is very loosely tied to anything yeah, I, because it's just like it happened. It probably is intentional, but we have too many other things going on for that to matter thematically. Right. I think we have criticisms on how Del Toro tells stories. And I think you can really pick that out from this quote he has where he says, there's only two stories that are worth telling in any form, a character that wins everything and a character that loses everything. And that is such a narrow-minded way of telling stories, which I think you can really see in his movies. Is it, it, it just feels like there's always something missing from them because apparently there's only, two, there's only two good ways to tell a story to him. Yeah, and that, again, it, it really comes down to, a, 
I think of it, it's interesting thinking of like how human culture uh, is at a point now, like where we think of the the dominant thinking that there is everything is dichotomy, good and evil, and that comes a lot from religion and. Uh, and especially in the case of Guillermo del Toro, he said he's not really a Catholic anymore, but he's, he's made the comment that once a Catholic, always a Catholic, because you get ingrained these these uh, ideals, these um, uh, these modes of thinking. And I think that the having, if you hold the, that idea long enough, that there is just there is good and there is evil, you will live in a world of dichotomies and you'll miss the 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 grays and all of the nuance. I mean, we're going to do Incendies coming up. What a wild movie that that blows that notion completely out of the water. There is nothing but grays and yeah. grosser grays and less grays. There is nothing conclusive about what you're supposed to feel yeah. at any point in that movie. And it is amazing because it is so... It's it's implausible in real life, but it is so true to the feeling of what it means to be human. It that is such a human movie, and that is nothing that like Del Toro ever makes. He doesn't make human movies. He makes ideas of humans. I uh, I watched that just before we went to the theater to watch Nightmare Alley, and I artificially set the bar very high for Nightmare Alley because I really liked Incendies, and so I'm. Really excited uh, that we get to. We're we're actually going to record that one this weekend. So like uh, like two days from now, we're going to record that, and then we finally get to put that out because we've been talking about incendies for a while. But I guess I think we're about ready to wrap up Nightmare Alley. I've kind of hit most of the things I want to. What are your final thoughts on this one? Um, you know, one last point that I would make is there were a few times where it felt like there was something about magical or supernatural that was about to happen. And you kind of get that sense because it's a general del Toro film that that would be the case. And then they're like, Nope, this is the real thing. This is how it actually happens. It was interesting. Like how they'd like, um, how they explained all of the tricks. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that was just like a weird thing. I did love the part where like, what's that spinning thing? He's like, Oh, it's just bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that. Yeah. That was pretty funny. Um, yeah, so overall this this movie is like the pieces are all there. Again, with with Del Toro, the pieces are there. He knows what what to work with and he's in the sandbox with and has all of the tools. Um and he has like the elements of a sand castle built in different places. Or just, one on top of another and yeah. the drawbridge is in the wrong place. Yeah, exactly. The moat is inside the castle. Right. <laughs> like, and he still has like a couple <laughs> buckets full of sand and he's like, those don't matter. Yeah. And like, that's just the, yes, they do. You just, you need to finish your castle. None of these things go together. So if you wanted to piece these things together yourself, make a good movie out of it, you could. But it this there's too many characters. It, it yeah. I, I think now what I realize it really it really just needs to be Pete. It really just needs to be uh Dr. Ritter. And those are the only two characters that he that exist in his life. We don't even need Molly. Right. Um I think that is would be a fascinating movie. Because I really didn't get what the point of the movie was or like who like thematically or like even like narratively we didn't yeah. really like who who mattered the most we kind of had a sense that uh bradley like stan was like obviously the main character because he burned house and we're following him around yeah but it didn't really mean anything for a while and then for it to come together in the second half 
I really it did. I really like yeah. the idea when Pete tells Stan, you know, it's pretty much the way you're good at reading people is based on how much trauma you went through as a child. Yeah. And I really like the idea of exploring that trauma by having him having a father complex with Pete and then a mother complex with Dr. Ritter. Absolutely. That makes that that makes the story like so much more fascinating. So yeah, I don't really think the other characters need to play any kind of role in this. They can I mean it just just cast a couple extras to be in the background. You don't need anyone as acclaimed as Willem Dafoe to play Clem because he doesn't do anything in this movie. Right. That should have been a Stanley Tucci character. Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my final thoughts, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. It, it feels like all, everything is almost there, which is how I felt about Pan's Labyrinth. It's like it feels like everything is almost there to make this really, really good. And then you have characters that either don't matter or you have Kate Blanchett's character that devolves into a Disney villain at the very end. And that's supposed to be your big reveal where she's like, oh, like, Stan, you really take my breath away when she's being choked. I was like, oh, my God. Like, again, that that's I think that's really her character is the only one that really leans into that film noir aesthetic mm-hmm. and it that's why she her line right there feels so out of place i laughed like i laughed in the theater i laughed too because <laughs> yeah oh it's ridiculous it, it it is just so awkward and i think one of my big takeaways from this movie is is how it ends it, oh. it it is reminiscent of lord of the rings how it ended where people were complaining that oh it should just stop here it should stop here this movie really has a point where it should have just stopped um Stan has kind of hit rock bottom. He's like hitched a ride on a on a railroad car, and he's laying down in it, and it's a car full of chicken coops. And he's at this point. At this summit, we kind of didn't really talk about um, everything that starts to go wrong for his character is when he starts drinking, mm-hmm. which saw that one coming a mile away because he makes a point to not drink, and he talks all the time about he's like I need to be on my game. I, I'm always on, and if I drink, it dulls the senses. So of course, once. Ritter gets him to start drinking of course everything is going to start going wrong for him and that's when he winds up as a drunk in the train car full of chickens and he's the geek now yeah exactly and it is perfect yeah he create he completed the transformation because you got him hooked on you know the little bit of this uh you know your opium then you and then you uh um really started to control them with the alcohol and then once you throw a chicken to them then they you know they'll do whatever you want um and it makes so much sense right there. And especially if he had like just started like, he breaks down like laughing at crying at the end of the movie. Which goes on for too long too. Goes on for what? Why? Yeah. So long. So long. Um, that would have been great to end it right there because he, this character would have understood the irony. We would have understood the irony and we could have all just moved on. But yeah. instead we get a jump forward a couple of years and he's just a hobo now. Yeah. I, I, really really thought the movie was going to end there because i was like this is actually for as many problems as i have with this movie this would be the perfect way to end it you it is symbolized like his his rise and his fall and we get the uh we get all the background on how uh, how you form a geek mm-hmm. uh from from clem's character and he has hit all the boxes and now he's drunk in the back of a train car full of chickens and i was like perfect cut to black and then it keeps going so I was disappointed in that. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's score this one. How many Cyclops babies do you give this one? Oh, gosh. You know, I gave Pan's Labyrinth a 5.8. I think there are less interesting things here. This is really like a 4.5. I 
It's really disappointing. I want to like Guillermo del Toro so bad. He sounds like everyone just has wonderful things to say about him. Sounds like a beautiful person. He's just not a filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would rate this lower than you. Uh, I just like a two or a three. I didn't, I didn't like this at all. Mm. Uh, yeah, like we we talked about the characters and how the themes and the narrative don't seem to work together. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't uh, have a ton of fun with this one. Uh, but what I did have a ton of fun with was talking about it with you, which is why I'm always thankful to get to come back and do this because whether or not I like the movie, I, I like these, uh, I like doing the podcast with you. All right. And with that, we're wrapping this one up. Uh, you can find us on any platform that you want to find your podcast on like Apple music or Spotify. Uh, we also upload all these to YouTube. Um, uh, please leave a comment. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Uh, if you have any suggestions on things we should watch, uh, we love checking those out. I like reading the comments and everything. So, uh, yeah, with that, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.